This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com slash freebooks for a free downloadable copy in PDF form of this book. Productive Christians in an Age of Guilt Manipulators, A Biblical Response to Ronald J. Sider by David Chilton, published by Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas, copyright 1981. Part 2, The Future of Poverty. Chapter 16, The Basis for Economic Growth. As we have seen, the only way to achieve real wealth for everyone is to increase productivity through capital investment. Where the market is not hampered by restrictions on investment and income, or by inflation of the money supply, increased production for consumer wants will result in rising real wage rates and lower prices for everyone. Gustavo R. Velasco of Mexico wrote, The fundamental obstacle which prevents Mexican workers from enjoying the ample wages that American working men receive consists simply in the fact that our production per head is many times lower than that of our neighbors, because the latter do not work alone, but aided by the greatest accumulation of capital in history. But this capital accumulation and investment did not just spring out of nowhere. Because man is created in God's image, he is an innately religious being. Every aspect of his life will reflect his relationship with God. Man's culture, therefore, is necessarily religious and covenantal, as Henry Van Til has stressed. Since religion is rooted in the heart, it is therefore totalitarian in nature. It does not so much consummate culture as give culture its foundation, and serves as as the presupposition of every culture. Even when faith and its religious root are openly denied, It is nevertheless tacitly operative as in atheistic communism. A truly secular culture has never been found. The religious basis for the culture always bears fruit in the economic sphere. Long-established habits and traditions do not change as quickly as does theoretical speculation. When the religious basis of a culture is transformed, It takes time for that change to work itself out into the cultural life. The religious shift in the Renaissance period, separating nature from grace, produced the statism of the Reformation era. The Reformational return to the principles of biblical law eventually worked out in the political liberty and free enterprise under the rule of law. The Enlightenment saw its fulfillment in the essentially pagan practice pagan politics of revolutionary statism and anarchy. Culture is produced by religion and to some degree lags behind it. This is why, as we have seen, some ex-heathens were prohibited from exercising full civil status in Israel for up to ten generations. But the cultural fruit of the religious root eventually comes to maturity, which is why, as John Chamberlain says, Christianity tends to create a capitalistic mode of life. Capitalism is a a material byproduct 
of the Mosaic Law. The laws of the Bible work to restrain both statism and anarchy. It must be admitted that many modern capitalists think in terms of Enlightenment principles, hence the tendency towards statism among conservatives and towards anarchy among libertarians, both groups trying to base the product of Christianity upon pagan principles and thus both groups doomed to failure. The Christian framework of freedom within law cannot be simply imposed upon a heathen culture. The bare economic structure of capitalism cannot be imported into a culture successfully. We cannot talk about the mere fact that India needs free enterprise and capital investment. The issue is, why does India resist freedom? The answer is to be found in India's religious and philosophical persuasions. Mises says, India lacks capital because it never adopted the pro-capitalist philosophy of the West and therefore did not remove the traditional institutional obstacles to free enterprise and big-scale accumulation. Capitalism came to India as an alien imported ideology that never took root in the minds of the people. The ideology of pagan countries is ably summarized by P.T. Bauer as lack of interest in material advance combined with resignation in the face of poverty, lack of initiative, self-reliance, and of a sense of personal responsibility for the economic fortune of oneself and one's own family, high leisure preference, together with a lassitude often found in tropical climates, relatively high prestige of passive or contemplative life compared to active life, the prestige of mysticism and of renunciation of the world compared to the acquisition and achievement, acceptance of a preordained, unchanging, and unchangeable universe emphasis on performance of duties and acceptance of obligation rather than on achievement of results, or assertion or even a recognition of personal rights, lack of sustained curiosity, experimentation and interest in change, belief in the efficacy of supernatural and occult forces and of their influence over one's destiny, insistence on the unity of the organic universe, and on the need to live with nature rather than conquer it or harness it to man's needs, an attitude of which reluctance to take animal life is a corollary, belief in perpetual reincarnation, which reduces the significance of effort in the course of the present life, recognized status of beggary, together with a lack of stigma, in the acceptance of charity, opposition to women's work outside the household. Bauer goes on to emphasize that these attitudes are not surface phenomena, but are an integral part of the spiritual and emotional life of hundreds of millions of people. This situation can only be aggravated by foreign aid and irresponsible charity. It cannot be helped by the capitalist cure-all of investment. Make no mistake, these economies do need free enterprise and enormous capital investment. 
But the point is that those things alone will not change the face of heathen economies in a lasting way. Autonomous capitalism is a washout. It is an attempt to grab the blessing of God by secularist methods. The fact that Robert J. Ringer's Restoring the American Dream spent five months on the New York Times bestseller list should be no cause of rejoicing to those who desire a return to biblical free enterprise. His book should be titled Anarchist Nightmare. It is a libertarian lawlessness. Its basic thrust can be guessed from the titles of his other hits, Looking Out for Number One and Winning Through Intimidation. That kind of capitalism can produce only cultural disintegration. Nothing will change a spiritually enslaved culture apart from freedom in Christ. No course in economic principles, divorced from their Christian base, will be able to lift a society out of the practically dead-end stagnation described by Bauer. The task is completely hopeless. Ludwig von Mises discovered this this in pre-World War II Austria and Germany as he and a small group of free-market economists labored mightily to convince their contemporaries of the fallacies and dangers of statism. Mises was an extraordinarily lucid writer. Communication itself was not the problem. But he was speaking to a generation determined to fling itself into slavery. Nothing he said or did was to any avail. One Nazi economist even informed him that he had no interest in the problem of inflation since it had nothing to do with economics. Hmm. Later, as a newly arrived immigrant to America, Mises penned the most poignant lines in all economic literature. I have come to realize that my theories explain the degeneration of a great civilization. They do not prevent it. I set out to be a reformer but only became the historian of decline. Salvation in this world and the next is not found in economics. Regeneration is the only foundation for social stability and growth. Slaves need liberty, but they cannot be legislated into it. If men are not bound to Christ, they will be slaves to Satan, and there will be no escape from the whirlpool of cultural decomposition. At least totalitarianism, and all, for all its faults, acts as a temporary buffer of semi-law before the final end in complete dissolution. Edward Banfield's study of a backward society has already been cited, but he wrote another book which was much more upsetting to sociologists, for it is based on his research among social classes in America and shows the fundamental causes of institutional poverty in this country. At the present-oriented end of the scale, the lower-class individual lives from moment to moment. If he has any awareness of a future, it is of something fixed, fated, beyond his control. Things happen to him. He does not make them happen. Impulse governs his behavior, either because he cannot discipline himself to sacrifice a present for a future satisfaction, 
or because he has no sense of the future. He is therefore radically improvident. Whatever he cannot use immediately, he considers valueless. His bodily needs, especially for sex, and his taste for action, take precedence over everything else, and certainly over any work routine. He works only as he must to stay alive, and drifts from one unskilled job to another, taking no interest in his work. Although his income is usually much lower than that of the working-class individual, the market value of his car, television, and household appliances and playthings is likely to be considerably more. He is careless with his things, however, and even when nearly new, they are likely to be permanently out of order for lack of minor repairs. The lower-class individual has a feeble, attenuated sense of self. He suffers from feelings of self-contempt and inadequacy, and is often apathetic or dejected. In his relations with others, he is suspicious and hostile, aggressive yet dependent. He is unable to maintain a stable relationship with a mate. Commonly, he does not marry. He feels no attachment to community, neighbors, or friends. He has companions, not friends. Resents all authority, for example, that of policemen, social workers, teachers, landlords, employers, and is apt to think that he has been railroaded and to want to get even. He is a non-participant. He belongs to no voluntary organization. He has no political interest and does not vote unless paid to do so. Banfield concludes, so long as the city contains a sizable lower class, nothing basic can be done about its most serious problems. Good jobs may be offered to all, but some will remain chronically unemployed. Slums may be demolished, but if the housing that replaces them is occupied by the lower class, it will shortly be turned into new slums. Welfare payments may be doubled or tripled and a negative, inco negative income tax instituted, but some persons will continue to live in squalor and misery. New schools may be built, new curricula devised, and the teacher-pupil ratio cut in half. But if the children who attend these schools come from lower-class homes, the schools will be turned into blackboard jungles, and those who graduate or drop out from them will, in most cases, be functionally illiterate. The streets may be filled with armies of policemen, but violent crime and civil disorder will decrease very little. If, however, the lower class were to disappear, if, say, its members were overnight to acquire the attitudes, motivations, and habits of the working class, the most serious and intractable problems of the city would disappear with it. In a word, regeneration. The issue is not poverty or hunger, but faith and ethics. The present-oriented slave cannot be helped by mere capitalist moralizing about pulling himself up by his own bootstraps. He does not want to. Nor will he be helped by handouts. They will only reinforce his moral defects. This is not to say that, he, that we shouldn't give him charity when it is needed. But it is to say that if we are genuinely charitable, 
we must give much more than money and food, and that our charity must not be focused on mere money and food. And particularly, we must not do what Ronald Sider does in his book. Banfield warns against the use of rhetoric, which tends to encourage the individual to think that society, for example, white racism, not he himself, is responsible for his ills. Increased envy will only aggravate the problem. As Solomon said, the compassion of the wicked is cruel. Proverbs 12.10 Again, the poor need free enterprise, capital investment, and rising productivity in order to attain better living standards. Socialistic transfers of wealth, even assuming funds went to the poor and not to bureaucrats and politicians, can only reduce differences in incomes by reducing the incomes of the wealthy, not by increasing productivity. Thus, even at best, socialism cannot sustain higher living standards among the poor. And besides, it's theft. But neither can a decadent, amoral capitalism produce an appreciable change in the poor. What, need, what they need cannot be reached by capital. Bauer and Banfield's descriptions of the chronically poor of East and West are horrifying. <clears throat> they completely undermine all current theories of doing something for the needy. Apart from the deep penetration of God's word into the basic ethos of society, nothing can be done. Even the biblical laws of charity are only temporary and short-term measures. We are commanded to give generously, and we must do so. But if we are going to do more than subsidize poverty, we had better not stop there. First, there must be evangelism. Cider reports that American churchgoers tithe about 2.5% of their income. And that is indeed a tragedy. Personally, and by our giving, we must bring the gospel to the poor. And it must not be the lawless, cheap evangelism of the antinomianism. Our hearers must be presented with the full orb demands with the full orb demands of the covenant in every area of life. The biblical gospel teaches Christ as Savior and Lord. His law must be obeyed. The poor must learn the relationship of salvation to family life, work, debt, responsibility, thrift, savings, and everything else. The working of the Spirit in their lives combined with the practical standards of biblical law, will give them the power to exercise increasing dominion as God opens up new opportunities to his obedient people. Evangelism among the poor in the United States and abroad is a crucial priority. Flowing from this should, the, should be the Christian schools in poor neighborhoods. There is an urgent need for institutions that are centered firmly in the application of God's law to the various disciplines, including the learning of trades. We must work diligently in this area. And if we are faithful, the godless, theft-financed public schools will fold under allowing Christian mission schools to have a monopoly in more and more areas. 
In addition, we do need to support political action in order to change the truly unjust structures that actually hurt the poor. We must seek to abolish the minimum wage, fractional reserve banking, the government monopoly of the mint, compulsory education laws, rent controls, zoning restrictions, tariffs, price supports, price ceilings, closed shop union laws, taxation of property and inheritance, immigration restrictions, windfall profits, taxes, restrictions on energy development, and many other things. We, do, we need to do everything we can to increase the productivity of God's world. Poor countries should be made aware that true development will occur not by envious political expropriation, but through increasing capital supply and investing it in terms of market demand. National, state, and local governments must be forced to retreat into their rightful spheres of authority. Capital punishment and restitution laws must replace the unbiblical prison system, which will also free up resources for investment. In every area, men must be allowed the responsibility to fulfill their calling under God. Am I dreaming? How could this happen? That brings us back to the first point, evangelism. As men are regenerated by the grace of God, learning to take on the responsibilities which the law commands, they will give up their idolatrous dependence upon the state. The key to cultural transformation is the gospel. Envy will steadily disappear, not, appease, not by appeasing it, but by the dissemination of biblical ethics throughout the society. Those who do obey will be blessed by more dominion, while those who disobey will be cursed. With increased responsibility, productivity will increase, the culture will grow in numbers and in wealth. The issue is not poverty. The issue is not even capital supply. Abundant food is in the fallow ground of the poor, but it is swept away by injustice. Proverbs 13.23 Resources are not infinite, but they are vastly more than we can imagine. The earth was made by God, and He is capable of bringing forth tremendous prosperity. Even the underdeveloped land of the poor man can support a great deal of production. But it is presently swept away by injustice, by ungodly structures and practices which God curses by withholding abundance. And the only real issue is faithful obedience to the law of God. Capital can grow. Productivity can increase until the last judgment. But the basis for such economic growth is biblical law. The religious and economic history of England provides a good illustration of this. Early in the 18th century, a high society lady once joked that Parliament was preparing a bill to have not taken out of the Ten Commandments and inserted in the creed. That is, preparing a bill to have not taken out of the Ten Commandments and inserted in the creed. It was not far from the truth. 
By all descriptions of the period, it was characterized by rampant ungodliness and almost complete disregard for biblical standards in every area of life. J.C. Ryle wrote, Christianity seemed to lie as one dead. There was darkness in high places and darkness in low places. Darkness in the court, the camp, the parliament, and the bar. Darkness in country and darkness in town. Darkness among rich and darkness among poor. A gross, thick, religious and moral darkness. A darkness that might be felt. The government and the courts were corrupt. Open bribery was a continual practice. And the poor were flagrantly oppressed, which is not to say that the poor were any better. Crime was abundant, and the attempt of the authorities to suppress it by making 160 offenses punishable by death was to no avail. Whole districts were sunk in abject heathenism, ignorant of the most basic principles of the gospel. And what were the churches doing? Says Ryle, They existed, but they could hardly be said to have lived. They did nothing. They were sound asleep. In short, England was well down the road, which for a nation, just across the channel, climaxed in the orgy of horror known as the French Revolution. Yet within a few years, the situation changed entirely. Thousands were converted to vital Christianity. The slave trade was abolished, in a manner vastly different from the Unitarian-inspired abolitionist movement in America. Widows, orphans, and poor were cared for. Hospitals were established. Missionary and tract societies flourished. What made the difference? To a great extent, the change can be traced to the labors of George Whitfield and his companions, who spearheaded one of the most far-reaching evangelistic movements in history. England heard and believed the gospel of Christ and began to obey the laws of God. This flowed out into every aspect of culture, including economics and politics. Those results are described by Ludwig von Mises. In the middle of the 18th century, conditions in England were hardly more propitious than they are today in India. The traditional system of production was not fit to provide for the needs of an increasing population. The number of people for whom there was no room left in the rigid system of paternalism and government tutelage of business grew rapidly. Although at that time England's population was not much more than 15% of what it is today, there were several millions of destitute poor. Neither the ruling aristocracy nor those paupers themselves had any idea about what could be done to improve the material conditions of the masses. The great change that within a few decades made England the world's wealthiest and most powerful nation was prepared for by a small group of philosophers and economists. They demolished entirely the pseudo-philosophy that hitherto had been instrumental in shaping the economic policies of the nations. They exploded the old fables, number one, that it is unfair and unjust to outdo the competitor by producing better and cheaper goods, two, that it is iniquitous to deviate from traditional methods of production, Three, that labor-saving machines bring about unemployment and are therefore an evil. Four, that it is one of the tasks of civil government 
to prevent efficient businessmen from getting rich and to protect the less efficient against the competition of the more efficient. 5. That to restrict the freedom and the initiative of entrepreneurs by government compulsion or by coercion on the part of other powers is an appropriate means to promote a nation's well-being. In short, these authors expounded the doctrine of free trade and laissez-faire. They paved the way for a policy that no longer obstructed the businessman's effort to improve and expand his operations. What begot modern industrialization and the unprecedented improvement in material conditions that it brought about was neither capital previously accumulated nor previously assembled technological knowledge. In England, as well as in the other Western countries that followed it on the path of capitalism, the only pioneers, the early pioneers of capitalism started with scanty capital and scanty technological experience. At the outset of industrialization was the philosophy of private enterprise and initiative. And the practical application of this ideology made the capital swell and the technological know-how advance and ripen. The only ultimately productive economic system will be the result of two critical factors. Future orientation, the assumption that progressive development and productivity are possible and desirable. And number two, the rule of law the widespread obedience of the culture to the commandments of the Bible. As the gospel spreads throughout society, the biblical worldview will become the framework of economic activity. Slavery of all types, including statism and consumerism, will disappear as ethics become conformed internally and externally to the word of God. The only hope for the real elevation of the poor is capital accumulation and productivity. The only hope for capital accumulation and productivity in the long run is cultural obedience to God's law in all human action. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.